For those who are remaining, um, I would ask that you stand in honor of God's word as I read from Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we, we thank you for the things that we've already sung about this morning, where we have sung of the gracious and glori glorious realities of your presence and care with us, the redemption that you have accomplished in and through your Son, Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We thank you for your scriptures, without which how could we know of these things? How could we know what they mean and the significance for our lives? And so we pray now that you would help us to, to give our attention and focus toward your word and that your spirit would attend unto us, that we would see wonderful things about Jesus in this text and what you have for us in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, so, a few years ago, uh, at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, the sociologist uh, Hartmut Rosa, who Jeff has talked about some in Sunday school, he said this uh, about the speed of modern life. One very curious but consistent fact about late modern life is that almost irrespective of their values, status, and moral commitments, people feel notoriously short on time and tirelessly pressed to hurry. Individuals from Rio to New York, Los Angeles to Moscow and Tokyo feel caught in a rat race of daily routines. They are possessed by the fear of losing out, of being left behind, of not being able to catch up with all the requirements they feel obliged to meet. No matter how fast they run, they close their day as subjects of guilt. They almost never succeed in working off their to-do lists. Thus, and even especially if they have enough money and wealth, they are indebted temporally. This is what perhaps characterizes most accurately the everyday predicament of the overwhelming majority of people in Western capitalist societies. Amidst monetary and technological affluence, they are close to temporal bankruptcy. In other words, we are running ourselves into the ground with busyness. 
We're piling on debt with regard to time. Picture your to-do list like a credit card statement. We just keep swiping the card of time, adding more and more to do, and the debt is rising, and our bodies cannot bear the cost. He's saying, regardless of what you believe or value, that we live this restless, busy, guilt-ridden life. People may not feel guilty before God as much anymore, but, but the guilt of failing at life and the fear of not doing well in life is ever-present. We are afraid of missing out, of failing, of not keeping up. We feel guilty for not doing enough, for not being enough, for always feeling behind, stressed out. Is there a better way? Is there a better way to live? This morning, we're going to specifically focus on chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 of Paul's uh, prayer, Paul's prayer where we can see a better way. First, if you would, have the text out. I, I want to just walk through very briefly just the logical flow of what Paul is praying, and then we're going to unpack this a little more. Starting in verse 9, right, Paul prays that we would grow in love, love that is wise and discerning, and the point of growing in this kind of love is so that we will know what really matters, what really counts, and from this wisdom-shaped love that helps us to know what really matters, that would produce in us a life that is sincere, that's pure and blameless, that's focused toward the goal, that is the day when Jesus returns and brings the fullness of His kingdom. And He prays that as we grow in love and as we live toward that day, that through Jesus right now, our lives would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, all to God's praise and glory. There is a way to slow down and simplify. There is a way of learning what really counts what really matters, a way of living wholeheartedly a life that's fruitful. And that life, in this text as we see, it's found in Jesus and it's formed in us as we grow in love. See, one of the problems of modern life is that there is no clearly defined idea of what the good life is. In our pluralistic world where people believe and value all sorts of different things and contradictory things and, and where there's differing opinion as to, as to what's right and wrong, there's no clear good life to pursue. If you asked a hundred people what's the point of life or, or what's the purpose of life, you'd get all sorts of different answers and probably one of the most common is everyone needs to just figure that out for themselves. And, and so, I think a lot of us are trying to figure it out for ourselves. We're trying to figure it out. It's up to us. But since there's no clear path, we just fill up life with so many things, as many experiences as we can, as many opportunities as we can, as many projects as we can, as many things as we can. We just keep filling it up in the hope that someday we'll get somewhere and maybe we'll be full. So, there's a movie that wonderfully pictures a life lived towards various goals, where in the end the main character realizes that the only thing that really makes life truly worth living is to live toward self-giving love. 
Do you know what this movie is? I'll give you a few hints. Um, when Aaron and I were at Trinity about 15 years ago, so it's a little older, I was a grad student at Wheaton, and one February, big hint, we just had to watch this movie, and because it was 2010, we like called all the Best Buys around, and we found it at a Best Buy off uh, 38 in Lombard. It is a philosophically rich movie from the 90s starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell. Yes, Groundhog Day. Um, the basic plot of the movie, if you've never seen this, you have this guy, Phil Connors. Uh, he's a cynical, selfish person. He's a weatherman who has to go to Punxsutawney, PA, for the Groundhog Day festivities, and he's quite grumpy about it. Well, he ends up in this time loop, I guess you could call it, where every day he wakes up, and it's Groundhog Day again and again. And he keeps living this day over and over and over again. And whether they're right, the experts on the internet say that he lived 34 years, about 34 years of this one day over and over again. He lives this day and he lives it toward various ends. You know, he, he's trying to make life work. He's trying to be happy, you could say. And initially he pursues things like money and sex and power, three categories that various people have used to describe our modern world and what so often drives us and what can, we can be led to seek after but doesn't deliver. I mean, money, he robs a bank. He has all the money that he could want. Uh, he pursues pleasure. He realizes that if he can just learn enough about people and he can learn, you know, what, what they're really into, that he can pretend to be the perfect match uh, and he can manipulate his way into relationships. Power, because he lives this day over and over again, he develops a godlike omniscience where he just knows everything about everyone and everything that's going to happen. The one thing that he can't get is love. He can't get real relationship and love. And about halfway through the film, he realizes that he desires his coworker Rita played by Andy McDowell. And at first he tries to go after her by the same tactics he used with the other women. He amasses information and learns all this stuff about her. He learns some French poetry. He tries to use that, and it utterly fails. She wants nothing to do with him. It's only as he learns to love and as he learns to spend his days growing in love that he actually finds life and then he actually experiences real love and, and relationship. To have life, he has to have the right goal, and he also has to become a certain kind of person. In this prayer that we just read, Paul, who knows the Christians of his day, just, just like people in our day, can be living toward all sorts of different goals and ends. Paul prays oriented toward the ultimate goal the day of Christ. If you look at the text, you see this mentioned in verse 10, where Paul prays that they would be, these Christians, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You also see it if you look back in verse 6, where Paul wrote, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus, God has come into this world. He came and he defeated death and sin and evil by dying on a cross and rising again. This is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. And Jesus has brought this new way of life, a new way of, to be human, you could say. 
And as we are brought into right relationship with God through Jesus, and we are being made more and more like Jesus, we await this day when Jesus is going to return, and He's going to bring the fullness of His kingdom into this world. That is the reality we're meant to live toward. And so Paul sees this goal, and he prays that we would grow in love. He prays that we would grow in love so that our lives have clarity, and he prays that we would grow in love, that our lives would be fruitful. Let's, let's think about those two things as we look at this prayer. Paul prays that we would grow in love, that our lives would have clarity. Look at the text with me at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. In 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul's famous chapter on love, the first thing that he says about love is, love is patient. Love isn't in a hurry. Love doesn't rush. It's not busy and frantic. It's, it's slow. I mean, can't we all think about times where we're feeling rushed, where we're feeling busy, where we're feeling stressed out by everything going on? And aren't those the times so often where we fail to love? I mean, love isn't efficient. A relationship can't be hacked. Becoming a person of love can't be optimized mechanically like a computer. Love takes time. And so if Hartmut Rosa is right and and our world is just pushing us in the direction of speed and living faster with more busyness, we have to recognize that it is pushing us in the opposite direction of love. And as Paul writes here that love is not primarily a feeling or an affection, growing in love is about becoming a certain kind of person who lives in the world with loving action and deeds. And in the context of Philippians, the love that Paul is talking about here is that which participates in the mission of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Look at verse 5 of this passage. This is what Paul has been thanking God for, that these Christians in Philippi, they are true partners with him in gospel mission. If you look at verses 7 and 8, Paul and these believers, they are bonded together through this shared love and through partaking in grace and mission together. And if you read the rest of Philippians, you will see that this is slow and this is hard work because it means working with other people and loving other people and considering others' interests and not just your own. It means not just going at your own pace, but it means living at a pace where you can actually stand with others in mission, united around the good news of Jesus. Paul prays, verse 9, that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. See, this isn't isn't a sentimental love. This, This is a love of God and of others that's been formed by experience and understanding. This is a discerning love that intuits how to act and behave and live in such a way that builds up others and loves others well. And just like loving other people is slow, growing in that kind of love is slow and gradual. 
Many of you know that I, I spent about eight years before coming here doing campus ministry. And in my work with students, I remember how often students would come wanting guidance for their lives. They were often deeply afraid of messing up their lives. They wanted to be able to live well. They wanted to be able to make good decisions. And that might be something with their life or their career. It might have been often there was, you know, some kind of problem that they were having, a struggle, a relational issue. And think about yourself. When you're in a difficult situation or you're faced with a difficult situ uh, future decision, what, what are you looking for? So often, what the students wanted was a technique. What, what are the three steps I can do to figure out God's will? What, what are the four steps to fixing this relational problem? And I remember thinking after reflecting and in some ways going, I don't, I don't know what the three steps are to figuring out God's will. Maybe I should know that. Maybe seminary should have taught me that. But I remember coming back to texts like this and realizing that so often what the Bible is concerned with is not technique, but it's about becoming a different kind of person. It's about growing into a person who's been formed by wisdom and love. It's about becoming the sort of person who's been formed by trusting in God and hoping in God. It's about us changing. We have to change and grow. It would be easier if it was just a technique, if I didn't have to change. But it appears as if these prayers in the New Testament, that, that what God is interested in is that actually we change and we grow and we are formed by love and we become different. Some may say that I'm going to try to pull way more out of this movie than I should. But I wonder, why is it when Bill Murray's character, Phil Connor, starts to live his life in the direction of love, one of the seemingly random things that he starts doing is he takes piano lessons. It is genius. Because, see, unlike technique that doesn't require you to change, playing an instrument requires practice that does not leave you the same. It is an embodied act that literally changes your brain. You become a person who plays the piano. As, as connections are made in your brain and muscle memory, as music on a page is translated to fingers, as sounds you hear in your ears are connected to finger movements and chord shapes, it is slow, it is hard, it is awkward, it requires a diligence and not giving up when you hit a roadblock. It's a lot like love. But this is why this is so important, because if we want clarity, we must be formed by love. Look at the logic of these verses. Verse 9, Paul prays that Christians would grow in love. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent, which is to say, so that you might know what really counts, that you might know what really matters. We said last week when we were looking at, at that text with, with Martha and Mary and Jesus that sitting at Jesus' feet relativizes and transforms how we relate to cultural values, and we saw that in Mary's life. And I'm not even going to try to list them today, but there are so many things that our culture values and will push you to value. And what if you could have clarity? What if you could be formed by the love of Jesus such that when you look at your life and the different parts of your life, 
You, you, you look at your relationships. You, you look at your neighborhood. You look at your time. You, you look at the kids if you have kids. You look at the things that you're going to commit to. You look at all these things, and you actually had clarity to say, this is what really matters. You see, slowing down and growing in love helps us to simplify our lives, to check certain things that maybe we really care about but aren't ultimately important, or to have certain things or people brought to our attention that we really do need to care about. Paul prays that we would grow in love so that our lives have clarity. He prays that we would grow in love so that our lives are fruitful in Jesus. Verse 10, he prays, that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. He prays that our lives would bear fruit. Fruit is a metaphor that's used throughout the Scripture. A few things about fruit, right? Fruit comes from somewhere. It, it doesn't just come from nowhere. Notice where this fruit comes from. It comes through Jesus Christ. This isn't a fruit you can fake, and it's not a fruit you can produce by your willpower. Fruit also doesn't come instantaneous. It has to be cultivated. Paul prays that our lives would grow in wise love, that we would understand what really matters so that we could live wholeheartedly toward this coming day of Christ and live fruitfully and if you were to keep reading in Philippians, you would come to chapter 2 where Paul writes of what Jesus did, that Jesus didn't cling to his privileges, that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, that he humbled himself to the point of death by crucifixion. And all of this, we're meant to see and conclude, this is what God is like. Like as you look at the cross, the deepest, most strongest impression we're supposed to have is this is what God is like. God is a God of self-giving love. And yet the whole point of that passage in Philippians 2, Paul writes these things about Jesus to say to Christians, to us, this way of life, this vision for life, this way of self-giving love is to be the pattern of your life. This is yours through faith in Jesus if this is what God is like, if what Jesus did in his life and his death showed what God was like, and if self-giving love is at the heart of God, then to know God and to grow in Jesus is to learn this way of love. You see, there is a new way to be a human being through Jesus. There's a way for us to be like God in all the ways that we're meant to be. And yet this fruit this fruitful life isn't just something that, that just comes natural or without any effort. This way of thinking is yours if you believe in Jesus, but it's something that, that has to be lived out and has to be worked out, worked out in life, worked out in, in the church, in the community of God's people. This is why in Philippians 2, if you kept reading, not only does Paul tell us about Jesus, but he holds out these two other examples, these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. These aren't sinless people, perfect people, but these are people whose lives are growing in love and are being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Um, 
There's a book by a guy named N.T. Wright, fantastic book. It's called After You Believe. He tells a story in the book about um, Maximilian Kolbe, a Roman Catholic, Polish Roman Catholic priest who died in 1941 in the Nazi death camp of Auschwitz. Prior to Auschwitz, Kobe, uh, his church, and, and the local community helped to hide and, and feed and clothe some 3,000 uh, Polish refugees, about half of which were Jewish. And in 1941, he was arrested by the Gestapo, and he was taken to Auschwitz. And during his time at Auschwitz, Kobe was known as a man in the camp for his, his calmness, his faith, his love, his care. Um, there was a prisoner escape, and ten men were randomly selected to die by starvation as punishment. And one of the men, upon hearing that he had been selected, just began to weep because he had a wife and children in the camp. And Colby stepped forward and offered himself He went to his death calmly. For two weeks, he was starved, and during that time, he ministered to the other nine men. He was later killed by lethal injection. Wright comments in the book, Colby was doing something that was the climax of a life spent giving himself away in following Jesus. When that moment in the camp came, he didn't have time to think, but he didn't need to. The thinking had been done a long time before. And the second nature habits of self-giving love had been ingrained in him as a result. The moment came, the decision was made. Here was a person who learned the way of love, whose life had been shaped by and oriented to the way of love by 10,000 mini decisions throughout his life that shaped him into the kind of person who is filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Here was a man whose life embodied what is at the heart of the universe, self-giving love. You see, the good news of Jesus is not only that Jesus died and rose to forgive you and to cleanse you that you might belong to God. The good news of Jesus is that right now there's a better way to be a human being. There's a better way to live. There's a way of life that is formed by love in Him. It's the only kind of life that we could even hope to live because God started this thing in us by His Spirit, and what God starts, He finishes. That's what Paul reminded these believers of in verse 6 of this passage. Even while we are called to work out this amazing salvation that's given to us, at every step of the way, we can only do so because God is at work in us. And this is, again, why we are doing this series, Habits for Love, because we want 
that amazing theology and the right beliefs about Jesus, Philippians 2 kind of stuff, to be stuff that's not only in our heads, but that's lived out in our lives, which means it's lived out in our schedules and in our habits and in our practices. Growing in this way of love will give us clarity and it will help us to live fruitfully as we follow Jesus. So we're in this series, Habits for Love, and we're in this part of the community project we're calling Attend to Grace. Last week in Sunday school and in the email that went out this past Tuesday, um, I invited you to practice a way of prayer that is meant to help you process your day in light of God's presence, His goodness, and His faithfulness. Today, in adult Sunday school, we'll be re- meeting right over there after the service. And in an email that's going to go out Tuesday morning, we're going to invite you to engage in a practice of meditating on God's Word. Jeff's going to be leading this and, and sharing more about how we might engage in, in these practices that help us to slow down, to pray, to think about Scripture, to take it in. This is the remedy to a busy, chaotic, stressed life as we learn to slow down with God in prayer and Scripture, as we learn to rest in Him, as we learn to drink deeply of His grace, rooted and grounded in His love, that we can live to His praise and His glory. I want to invite us now to turn to a time of prayer. As we always do after we hear God's word, we turn to God, confessing those ways in which we, we have sinned. We have not lived in light of his promises, his love, his faithfulness to us in this past week. We turn to him seeking his help and his forgiveness. So let's do that now, and then in a moment I'll close us in prayer.